The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. This week I had uh, the great joy of uh, joining together with lifelong friends as we went on a trip to celebrate our 40th birthday. Uh, It was a great trip, great friends, and we ended the last night with a celebratory dinner. We ate and drank and toasted and celebrated, and at the end they brought out this dessert. And the dessert was almost too much for us uh, to handle. It was so rich and so dense, it had so much chocolate and fat grams and calories and sugar and butter that it was almost too much for us to eat. Have you ever had food that was like that, that it's best enjoyed bit by bit, and it's hard to eat the whole thing at one time? This passage is like a really rich, dense dessert. It has so much that it's hard for us to take it all in in one sermon like this. What do you say? What, how do you encapsulate the cross of Christ in one sermon? It's easy for us to think about the cross in relation to other passages, to think about how all of Scripture points us to Jesus and how every, every road leads to Him and His work on our behalf. But when we look at the event of the crucifixion itself, it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. There's so much for us in this passage that it can begin to get overwhelming for us to know what to say. Initially, I was excited Uh, to preach about the crucifixion, but that changed about midweek when it was a struggle to figure out what to say. It is uh, important because everything that we are doing this morning, everything that we are about as a church, it hangs on this passage. We are people of the cross. Without the cross, we have nothing to offer. There's a part of us that wants to skip over the cross. We want to just, let's go to the resurrection, let's skip over the bad stuff, and let's get to the good news, the good parts at the end. But the cross, the cross is where we see Jesus in His glory. This is where the glory is. This, at the cross, is where your salvation and my salvation was accomplished. The resurrection is the vindication of that work which Jesus did on the cross But this, this is where it happens for us. At the cross, Jesus doesn't look like much of a king. He doesn't look very glorious, but at the cross is where we see the king in his glory. We see a king whose victory is death. We see a king whose glory is suffering. And if you want to know Jesus, you have to come meet him at his cross. And so would you follow along as I read this passage, Mark 15, verses 21 to 39. Hear God's Word to us today. And as they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, and they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. 
And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge read against him, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved, him, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in the way that he breathed his last, he said, Truly, This man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Our God, as we look at this passage, we pray that you would come and you would meet with us, that you would speak to us in power, and that by your Spirit that we would be changed, that you would make these words which are familiar, that you would make them fresh and new to us, and that you would soften our hearts to hear your voice. We pray that as we look to the cross, that we would behold you in your power and in your glory. Hear this prayer in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I want to consider this passage from the perspective of Mark. What does Mark want us to know about the crucifixion? What is important to him? There are a million things that he could have included when he wrote his gospel, but what did he think was important for us to know? There are three things that I think are important that Mark wants us to know about the crucifixion. The first is that it really happened. The second is that Jesus suffered for sin. And the third is that Jesus gives us access to God. So first, Mark wants us to know that the crucifixion of Jesus really happened, that he didn't just make this story up out of thin air. The passage begins with Jesus after he is beaten and he is mocked. He is too weak to carry his own cross. And so they compel someone who is passing by, Simon of Cyrene, to come and to carry his cross. Both Matthew and Luke note uh, that Simon was the one who carried the cross, but Mark is the only gospel writer who includes that Rufus and Alexander were uh, Simon's kids. It sounds a little strange when you read it. Why does Mark include the names of Simon's kids? Every commentator agrees that Mark includes it because the original audience of this gospel would have known Alexander and Rufus. It's not beyond reason for us to say that Alexander and Rufus as children might have been there with their father witnessing the crucifixion with them. It's almost as if Mark is saying, do you want to know if what I am writing is true? Do you want to know if this really happened? Go talk to Rufus. Call up Alexander. They will tell you 
that this really happened. And Mark goes further and he even gives us a location for the crucifixion. It's the place of a skull, that this is not a fairy tale. There is a piece of land on this earth where the Son of God hung on a cross. You can go there today. You can stand where He was crucified. Mark doesn't start the gospel with once upon a time. He doesn't start with long ago in a galaxy far, far away. This isn't a fanciful tale that was made up centuries later. This really happened. Jesus is a real human being, real flesh and blood who lived on this earth and who died on a cross at a particular time and at a particular place. And so we can have confidence that what Mark is telling us is true. But the second thing that Mark wants us to know about the crucifixion is that Jesus suffered for his people. It's no surprise that when we talk about uh, Jesus, we talk about the crucifixion, we talk about Jesus' suffering. It's a well-worn path for us. But what's interesting when you read Mark and you read the other gospel writers is that they talk very little about the physical suffering of Jesus. It's so brief in our passage this morning that you likely missed it. In verse 24, all Mark says is, and they crucified him. There's nothing about the nails that went in his wrist and in his feet. There was nothing about the torturous nature of crucifixion. There's more written about Simon and his family tree and about them gambling for clothes than there is about the physical suffering of Jesus. The lack of detail about physical suffering doesn't mean that it wasn't horrendous. The cross was a particularly cruel and painful way to die, but Mark leaves it out, I believe, because he doesn't want us to miss the other suffering that is going on. There is pain that is even greater than what he is facing physically. If you've been here the last few weeks, we've also looked at the emotional and the psychological suffering that Jesus faced. He was humiliated and betrayed and mocked and slandered and abandoned and ridiculed and misunderstood. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. And even in this passage, it's like everyone in the passage gets their chance to mock Jesus. In verse 24, it's the soldiers. In verse 29, it's those who are passing by. In verse 31, it's the chief priest and the scribes. In verse 32, it's even the men who are being crucified next to him mock him. But note that amid all of this suffering, amidst all of the physical and emotional suffering, Jesus remains remarkably calm and poised. He is in complete control. Jason mentioned this last week in his sermon that Pilate was used to having people bow down in front of him. He was used to having people beg for mercy, but Jesus just stood there. What I think is most in view in this passage is not the physical or the emotional suffering of Jesus, but it is his spiritual suffering. There's a tendency for us to want to think about Jesus and the way that he suffered physically because it's easier for us to connect to. It's easier for us to understand his physical suffering. His spiritual suffering, it is so dark and it is so mysterious and it is so painful for us to look at that it's hard for us to even ponder. The spiritual suffering that he endured was infinitely worse than the emotional or the physical we see that because something dramatic changes in verse 34 in our passage. Jesus, who has been steady and resolute, who even at his own trial barely uttered a word, 
at the cross, he screams with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did Jesus mean when he said this? These, these have been called his cry of dereliction, his cry of abandonment. But I want to think about Jesus' spiritual suffering by, thinking, uh, by looking through the lens of these words from the cross. In doing that, I'm going to be a little more technical and more theological uh, than usual, but I'm not doing that to try to impress you with my great theological knowledge or to try to confuse you, uh, but to try to keep us from error. It's easy when we consider these words of Jesus from the cross to venture into theological error, to contradict what we uh, know about the rest of the Scriptures by misinterpreting what Jesus is saying here, and I've been guilty of that as well. From this pulpit, I think I've misinterpreted and taught things that I don't think Jesus is saying here, and it was wrong to do that. I found uh, John T. Rhodes' book, Man of Sorrows, King of Glory, to be very helpful uh, in this regard. So I want to mention two things that Jesus doesn't mean and four things that he does mean from the cross. We'll go through this very quickly. The first thing that, Jesus, that this doesn't mean, that the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It does not mean that the Trinity was torn apart at the cross. You may have heard people say this. Christians across all time and all denominations believe in the unity of the Godhead, that there is one God who exists in three persons. In the Trinity, there are not three gods. The Trinity is not one-third Father, one-third Son, and one-third Holy Spirit. There is one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in one substance, all fully possessing the same divine essence. There is no possibility of separation because the one substance is indivisible. At the cross, the Trinity remains as it always has been and always will be. Uncreated, eternal, unmeasurable, almighty, co-eternal, co-equal, perfect in unity and in love. We must not say that the Trinity was torn apart at the cross. The second thing that is not that Jesus doesn't mean at the cross is it doesn't mean that Jesus lost the love of the Father. The Father never stopped loving the Son. This is another form of the first problem we just talked about. The Son laying down His life is what He came to do. This was the height of Jesus' obedience to the Father. And so it is wrong for us to say that the love and delight that the Father had in the Son ceased at the cross. In one sense, you could say that this was the crescendo of His love and delight in the Son as the Son uh, was paying for the sins of the world, that He was uh, triumphing over sin and death and Satan for the sake of His people. At the cross, the eternal love of the Father for the Son was not unbroken and did not cease for a second. So that's what it didn't mean. What did Jesus' words from the cross mean? I'll mention four things briefly. First, it it confirms what Jesus has known all along, that He would not be rescued while hanging on the cross. Jesus knew that this is what he came to do. This is what he has been telling us all along. We've been reading Mark's gospel. We know he's saying, I'm going to die. This is what I have come to do, to die for the sins of my people. Jesus is not confused 
in this statement. He, this is not a cry of doubt or of unbelief or of hesitation on his part. He knows what he has come to do, and he is obediently submitting himself to the Father's will. Jesus knew that he would suffer alone for the sins of his people. The second thing that Jesus' words tell us is that he is suffering on the cross as a substitute. He is suffering in our place. Because of our sins and our rebellion, we deserve to be on that cross. I deserve the eternal and unquenching wrath of God because of my sin and rebellion against God. But Jesus died in my place. As my representative and as my substitute, he got exactly what I deserve. Martin Luther puts it like this. He said, imagine it is as if the Father is saying to Christ that on the cross, be Peter the denier. Be Paul the persecutor, the blasphemer, the assaulter. Be David the adulterer. Be the sinner who ate the apple in paradise. Be the thief on the cross. In short, be the person of all men Be the one who has committed the sins of all mankind. And see to it that you pay for and make satisfaction for every one of their sins. Can you put your name there? Can you put your name as the one for whom Christ died? It is as if the Father says to Christ on the cross, Be Martin Wagner, that wretched sinner, and see to it that you pay for and make satisfaction for every one of his sins. Jesus' words mean that he died in your place as your substitute. The third thing that these words of Jesus teach us is that he experienced the wrath of God while not losing the love of the Father. This is the tension that we must hold as we look to Jesus on the cross. He didn't lose the love of the Father. The Trinity didn't lose a person while he was on the cross, but he did experience the wrath of God for sins. The Father continued to love and delight in the Son, but the Son's experience of that love was clouded and was withdrawn. The author A.W. Pink is helpful when he says that never was God more well-pleased with his beloved son than when he hung on the cross in obedience to him. Yet the Father withdrew from him every effect or manifestation of his love during those three hours of awful darkness. The Father turns his face away as we sing, turns his face away from the Son by taking away the Son's experience of divine comfort and pouring out the wrath of God on him. And finally, the last thing that we learn from Jesus' words on the cross is that it means that Jesus has gone where you and I will never go if we trust in him. Why did Jesus endure the wrath of God for sins? He did so so that you and I would never be abandoned or forsaken by God our Father that we would never feel the same loneliness, the same desolation that he felt at the cross. He took the place of scorn. He took the wrath that was yours and that was mine, and the full cup of the wrath of God was poured out upon him. 
And so if you are connected to Jesus by faith, this means that at your time of greatest need, at the time in which you are the most abandoned, the time in which you are the most alone, the time of your deepest fear and loneliness, this means that you will never have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You'll never have to say that because Jesus said it for you. He said it in your place for you. And so you are never alone. You are never ultimately abandoned because Jesus took your place. Because of Him, God promises that He will never leave us or forsake us. Harry Ironside was a pastor in the last century, and he told the story of a group of American pioneers who were making their way across the plains to find a new home in the West. And one day as they were traveling, they were horrified to see in front of them that there was a line of smoke miles wide, and they soon found out that there was a roaring fire that was coming directly toward them. They had crossed the river the day before, so they couldn't go back, and they were trapped. They knew that soon the flames would be upon them. In the midst of panic, one man seemed to have an idea of what to do. He gave the command. He said, burn everything that is around us. And when the area that was burned over, after it had been burned over, the whole company, the whole group of people sheltered in the area that was burned. And as the flames came toward them, From the west, a little girl cried out in terror, and she said, Are you sure? Are you positive that we will not be burned by the fire? And the leader replied, My child, the flame cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. At the cross, the fire of the judgment of God fell upon Jesus. And if you are in Him The fire cannot and will not reach you because there is nothing left to burn. Every sin, every bit of shame, every bit of guilt and condemnation that you feel is taken by Jesus. And there's not one blade of grass that remains to be burned. Where can you find safety and security from the wrath of God, from the condemnation and from the punishment that is yours? Go to where the fire has been. Go to the one who was burned in your place. I want to close with one final point. What does Mark want to tell us about the crucifixion? First, he wants to tell us that it really happened. Second, he wants to tell us that Jesus suffered. But third, that Jesus gives us access. Mark tells us in verse 37 and 38 that as Jesus breathed his last, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that shielded a sinful people from the holy God was torn in two. And Mark makes it clear that this curtain was not torn by human hands. This curtain was torn from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. The way into the holy presence of God has now been opened up to all, that whoever comes through Christ can access the heart of God. We have access into the Holy of Holies because the sacrificial system has been ended. It has been rendered null and void. It has been canceled. 
Because God's plan from all eternity past to redeem for himself a people for his own glory that he might dwell with them has been accomplished because of the obedience and the death of Jesus for us. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice who has been offered for you and access to the Father. Access is provided for all who would come through him. And so when your conscience accuses you of sins that you have committed, when you are tempted to remember and to believe in your failures and your shame keep you from having access to God, when you are tempted to believe that you have to earn access to God, when you're tempted to believe that God only loves you as much as you love and obey Him, I want you to see this curtain that has been torn in two for you. That this is what your Savior has done for you. He has made the perfect, final, and complete sacrifice for you. But the centurion that we see in verse 39 also shows us what it means to have access to God. This Roman soldier who is witnessing the death of Jesus gets what Mark has been trying to tell us all along. His confession is pitch perfect. This is what Mark has been trying to get us to see. He says, truly, this man was the Son of God. The soldier is seeing Jesus at his weakest. It doesn't make sense that he would say, this is the Son of God. He's seeing him on a cross. He's seeing this man who was supposed to be the king, but he looks like he's been defeated by his enemies. He's supposed to be a healer, but he can't heal himself the cross This is a God who looks weak. This is a God that we would despise because He's not the Savior that we would want. Because His glory is hidden behind a cross. Because His power is found in weakness. Because His wisdom is found in folly. Because His exaltation is found in His humiliation. The centurion teaches us that if you want to have access to Jesus... If you want to see Jesus for who He is, you've got to come to the cross to meet Him there. That's where you will find Jesus. You'll find Him at the cross because He's a friend of sinners. Because He is one who is gentle and lowly in heart. He is a God who will condescend all the way, all the way to the cross so that He might be with you. So if you want to know Jesus... If you want to be connected to Him, if you want to know the heart of Jesus, you don't have to work your way up to Him. You've got to come down to the cross where He invites you to come and to die with Him, where He invites you to come and to be crucified with Him and to find your life in Him. Last year, there was a singer named Nightbird She made an appearance on the show America's Got Talent, and the world was introduced to this incredible woman. She was 30 years old at the time. She's a gifted singer and songwriter, three-time survivor of cancer. And her life has been marked by more suffering than you and I could imagine. After she got cancer for the third time, her husband left her, walked out on her, and she writes this in her blog. And I want you to notice where God shows up as she writes. This is from her blog. After the doctor told me that I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I spent three months propped up against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I lay in a tub like an insect, 
staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited till I was hollow. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear that sometimes when I die and I meet God, He will say that I have disappointed Him, or I have offended Him, or I have failed Him. Maybe He'll say that I just never learned the lesson, or I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this, that He can never say that He did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at His door every day. I've called him a cheat, I've called him a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. You can call me cursed and call me lost and call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen and blessed and sought after. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden from me. Even on days when I'm not sick, I sometimes go and lay on the bathroom floor and listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is there even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. If you can't see God, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Do you want to know this Jesus? Do you want to be connected to Him? Do you want to know the heart of Jesus? You don't look high. You've got to look low. Don't look for power and glory and prestige. Look for suffering. Look at your Savior on the cross. God is on the bathroom floor. He is hanging on a cross. And He's there. And He's accessible. He is accessible to anyone who would come to Him. And He has come for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to believe what you say is true about us because of Jesus, that we are your beloved, that we are safe and secure in Christ, and that you have promised that you will never leave us or forsake us. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, take what is said, multiply it to your use, and we pray this through Christ. Amen.